This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one- to two-week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. In terms of just war theory, it is certainly just to strike back at Iran for backing these militants. That doesn't mean it's necessarily wise. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and here with me are Russell Moore and Nicole Martin. Today on our show, should we bomb Iran? The politics of celebrity friendships? Tech CEOs in front of Congress? And then an update from Cutter Calloway, the host of Be Afraid, after his visit to the Sundance Film Festival. So stay with us. On Sunday, a drone strike from an Iranian-backed militia killed three U.S. service members in Jordan. The attack took place at a military outpost known as Tower 22. It's near the borders of Syria and Iraq. The strikes hit the outpost's living quarters. Along with the three deaths, 34 others were seriously injured, injuries ranging from minor cuts to severe brain trauma. This follows events on January 11th, when two Navy SEALs died while operating in the Arabian Sea. The SEALs were boarding an unflagged ship carrying Iranian-made weapons, presumably that were headed to the Houthi rebels in Yemen. The Houthis have been boarding ships and blockading the sea there because of the war taking place in Israel. One member of that SEALs team fell, another dived in to rescue him, and both were lost at sea. We are recording now on Wednesday afternoon. So far, there hasn't been a direct kinetic response to the attack in Jordan. This afternoon, shortly before we talked, President Biden said he has decided how to respond. He didn't provide details about how or when. He did say, I'm not looking for a wider war. Also yesterday in Iraq, the largest Iranian-backed militia there said they're suspending operations against American forces, which people are taking as a preemptive move to signal that they're trying to de-escalate. Here we are now. We're several months into this war with Israel and Hamas. A lot of tension in the region. Five American service members have died in the past couple of weeks here. Where is this headed? What happens next? And what's the right thing for the U.S. to do in a moment like this? This is one of the reasons why we see presidents age as rapidly as they do in office. And President Biden doesn't have a long way to go. So we definitely (laughs) need to be praying for him in this. But when you think about the sorts of choices that have to be made that could either be provocative in terms of weakness or could tip over into a literal world war, those are not easy decisions to make. I was watching a YouTube video the other day, an old video of all people, Richard Nixon, talking about Iran. And when you hear him long after this explaining, without the Shah, this is what happens with the Iranian revolution. If the Iranian revolution happens, this is what comes after that. And it was completely accurate, but 
making these decisions, one just doesn't know what is going to come next. I definitely think in terms of just war theory, it is certainly just to strike back at Iran for backing these militants. That doesn't mean it's necessarily wise. There is at least one thing here that is very simple, and that is that the Iranian regime is horrific. And the rule of the Ayatollahs over the Iranian people, and that's especially true when you talk to Iranian Christians. I've long had the suspicion that when the Ayatollahs finally fall, and God please may that be soon, that regime is gone, we are going to see an Iranian Christian church that is far stronger and more vibrant than we can imagine right now. I was looking at the data. The attack on Sunday was the 158th strike against American troops by Iranian-backed militants since October 7th Hmm. when the war in Gaza began. There's a loud cry from a certain corner of the American military establishment, foreign policy establishment, from people saying, we've waited far too long to respond to these things. Now, of course, with the Houthis, we responded in Yemen. There's been a lot of action against the Houthis in Yemen. It does raise this other sort of broader question, right? Like when we got out of Afghanistan a few years ago, there was a very small coalition of American forces there that was basically there to say, don't do anything. It was just enough to menace the Taliban and other militants to stabilize the government, stabilize the region. And then, of course, as soon as we pulled out, the Taliban moved in. The Taliban moved in before we were even all the way pulled out, once they just knew we were leaving. And so you have a similar situation with American forces positioned in places like this small outpost, small coalition of soldiers that are really there as this stabilizing presence or this effort to stabilize in these different places. And it raises this question, particularly the debate you're having among old school Republicans who believe in the projection of American power and this new kind of isolationist thing that's emerged post-2016. Russell, do you want to talk about that debate and what that means for us as Americans? Like some people may hear this and they go, why are we there? Why shouldn't we just get these people home? Why are we letting our soldiers die in Jordan in the middle of nowhere? There's an old cliche, if you think education is expensive, try ignorance. If you think that it's dangerous to have American power overseas, wait till you see the loss of American power overseas. Because often what we think about are the big violent confrontations, Vietnam and Iraq and so forth. What we don't see are all the things that don't happen, specifically because we are supporting our allies all over the world. The people who right now are free, Germans, Japanese, Greeks, Italians, others, specifically because of the extension of American power. And so there's a kind of a simplistic notion that says, if you bring everybody home, then you have peace. When in reality, you bring everybody home, you're going to have more war. I don't see the exertion of American presence and power overseas as being immoral, but as moral. And one of the most amazing things about the United States of America, among many, is the fact that you haven't had for the most part, the kind of extension of power for self-exertion, as you would see in other empires. There really has been a stabilizing of the world for 
other people who wouldn't have flourished otherwise. I wonder, Russell, what your thoughts are about the temperament of the president making or breaking situations like these. I've heard some conversations, people saying, if we had Trump as president, he would be able to handle this type of aggressive foreign policy warfare issues. And it's because Biden's temperament is more reserved that we're going to have problems with dictators or we're going to have problems with bullies that are global. What's your take on that? Trump can't even handle his temperament in the courtroom. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of magical thinking that can go into, well, if my guy, whoever that is, were there, then everything would just magically be all right because of the force of temperament. But foreign policy is not a reality television show. It's not about the bluster that shows up on television. It's about having somebody with the ability to step back and say, I'm not going to answer this on the basis of whether I'm insulted or not, or whether I'm dishonored or not. I'm going to answer this on the basis of what's good for the United States of America. There are so many moments in American history that you look at and you say, it is a miracle that Dwight David Eisenhower was president then, someone with nothing to prove. And even in some moments with all of his flaws, somebody as intelligent and as cold in some of the right ways and some of the wrong ways as Richard Nixon. It's a great thing that Ronald Reagan was willing to take flack for building up American military forces and taking on the Soviets. And it's also good that he was willing to take flack from his right flank and willing to sit down and talk to Gorbachev. That takes a person very secure in his or herself to pull that off. It is a fraught thing because you hear the tension right now from people saying, we tolerated this for far too long. The moment these proxies send a drone at us, you should level them. That's what deterrence is about. That's why we have this power. As I think about it, and I think about Americans at risk in those places, keeping those places safe, there's part of me that says, well, isn't that part of our covenant with them to say we're going to make sure that anybody knows that if somebody messes with our people and our citizens, the full military power of the United States is there to protect them, to get them home. And at the same time, you do understand the extent to which a full-scale war with Iran would be devastating to human life on a scale that is hard to imagine right now, especially with all the other tensions that are already there in the region. I think if there's nothing else the idea that this moment is a time to be very sober about who it is we are putting in that office, to be the last guy to go, okay, go, I've given the order, that's a weighty thing, and it's a troubling thing, I think, given where we are right now as a country. It's so great, though, Russell, having your perspective and your vantage point on history and foreign policy. Just hearing that perspective is really even helpful for me, so I appreciate that. Oh, well, thank you. I realize it's a really defective person who enjoys watching old Richard Nixon YouTube videos. <laughs> as long as they're followed by the office, it sounds pretty balanced. That's true. I mean, That's I mean, true. Like, you get a little bit of everything. <laughs> All right. On that note, we will be right back.
Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're a month into 2024, and it's been quite a year for celebrities in politics already. Recently, Snoop Dogg says he has nothing but love for Donald Trump. Snoop has previously said and done pretty heinous things about Trump, including sharing a picture on social media of himself standing over Trump's dead body while promoting an EP in 2017. Also this month, we've had the rise of right-wing influencers who are now suggesting that Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey's relationship is a psyop. One version of it said that this whole thing is in order to seduce young men into getting vaccinated and young women into voting for Joe Biden. When we think about celebrities in politics, does it actually matter when celebrities get involved in politics? My challenge has always been I am more the lay politician. Unlike a Russell Moore who actually listens and follows, I sit in the crowd and listen to the banter going on around me. And it is a very sad thing that we have more people like me, lay politicians, who believe that the public opinion actually matters more than the foreign policy. So it's laughable to me because some of the things that I hear out here in the crowd in these lay streets, it's pretty ridiculous. But it also makes me a little nervous because people believe them. And when you compare the whole Gallup research on most trusted figures, Mm. pastors and politicians are pretty low on the list. I think people do believe the influencers. That's the scary part. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the question. Like, has a celebrity endorsement ever really made a difference? I can't think of a time when a celebrity endorsement actually made the difference. What I can think of happening are times when celebrities who have a really close sort of relationship with their fan base, Taylor Swift is one of them, who is able to say, hey, pay attention to this, you ought to register to vote. That actually, I think, has moved the needle a a time or two. But I had a friend who is a pretty progressive guy who texted me yesterday and said, now, you know this world better than I do. Are the Republicans really going to make this election a referendum on Taylor Swift? It's really one of these moments where you see the kind of outrage culture directed toward Taylor Swift for going to her boyfriend's football games and and the fact that he's vaccinated and drinks Bud Light. It's silly made-up controversy, and we're going to have a lot of it between now and November. And there's an element of this that's been around for a long time. 
as you're saying this, I'm remembering going to a Cosper family reunion 20-ish years ago. And I don't even remember the nature of the controversy. I just remember at some point during this thing, one of my cousins shows up with some grocery bags and he pulls out Heinz ketchup. And my uncle goes, get that communist ketchup (laughs) out of my kitchen right now. And I remember being like, wait, what? And he's, we do hunts in this house. Because the Heinz family, and it was a whole thing with something to do with the Heinz. I, and I have no memory of it, a vague memory of it being connected to a presidential campaign. It would be Teresa Hines, whose first husband was John Hines, but she later married John That's Kerry. Right. So That's that, right. That's that, what it was. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was get this communist ketchup out of my kitchen because of John <laughs> Kerry. We do this tribal signaling thing, mm-hmm. and we always have, but we're just a little more psychotic about it right now, mm-hmm. right? To be fair to my family background, like my uncle was a little fringy anyway back then, right? But now it's like everybody's doing it. Related to this, there was another celebrity interaction yesterday that I just felt like we just have to talk about this on the bulletin. Elmo, the Sesame Street puppet, Elmo, posted on X and he asked, how's everybody doing? The New York Post wrote about it today. I'll just read the headline. It'll give you an indicator of how everyone is doing. The headline was, Elmo asked ex-users how they're doing, and the trauma dump was so depressing, even the president responded. (laughs) How have I not seen this? So Elmo posts, Elmo's just checking in. How's everybody doing? Here's a fairly typical response. One person says, Elmo, each day the abyss we stare into grows a unique horror, one that was previously unfathomable in nature, our inevitable doom, which was once accelerated in years or months, now accelerates in hours, even minutes. Another person just responded, hi, Elmo, I just got laid off. (laughs) And then... And then President Biden quote tweeted it and said, I know how hard it is some days to sweep the clouds away and get to sunnier days. He wrote, our friend Elmo is right. We have to be there for each other, offer our help to a neighbor in need, and above all else, ask for help when we need it. Which I appreciated that from Joe Biden. Yeah, until you stop stop and think the President of the United States is interacting with a hand puppet. (laughs) (laughs) So, first of all, barring all trolls and those who are just replying because they think it's humorous, people want to be asked how they're doing. And I wonder, would anyone even respond if my pastor posted, hey, how's everybody doing? I think they would say blessed and highly favored. I think they would say (laughs) everything's good. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. But they're transparent on X with Elmo. This is interesting. Yeah, if you don't get the level of vulnerability that a Muppet could get, (laughs) then your ministry might be in trouble. (laughs) Might be in trouble. I just want, I think what we need is not Elmo, it's the two old guys up in the balcony on the Muppet show. Statler and Waldorf. Those are the heroes we need. But genuinely, one of the reasons why I thought it was interesting, because I was just reading all these different celebrities and politicians things. And and then I scrolled across that story. And part of the reason that I was interested in it is because of what you said there a second ago, Russ, this idea that there was something approachable about the Muppet that makes people go, I'm going to tell you an honest answer. I just got laid off. There is this sort of thing that happens. And that's where I think there's something we do with celebrities in general, where we project a lot onto them. Part of the power of Taylor Swift and her brand 
is the way she projects an authenticity and a vulnerability, which is performative and is not real vulnerability. It's not real authenticity. Like who knows what she's really like behind closed doors when the cameras are off. I've heard she's a wonderful, lovely person from people I know who've, who've worked with her. So I don't mean to imply anything by that. But the point being that it's not real, but there's something about that familiarity that's just really magnetically powerful. And I think the Elmo thing actually illustrates it perfectly. And it brings me back to the point that you said, because in 2016, when I was talking to friends and family members who were super excited about the Trump thing, I remember two conversations in particular really pressing in with people and hearing, yeah, we just really liked him on The Apprentice. And I think it was this sense of, this is someone I know that I can get into the office. I know this guy. I've spent 30 hours with him last year watching two seasons of The Apprentice. Yeah. Please, fellow evangelical Christians, do not hear us as advocating for a return of ventriloquist uh, events. (laughs) We don't need it. I was literally imagining a pastor in the pulpit saying, since you'd rather not talk to me and just stoop oh down gosh. and hold Pulls up the, the elbow. It, Nicole, I have seen it. No. We had a oh whole group of puppet evangelists, no. and including a guy I have seen preach with a little ventriloquist dummy there. What would you say to the people here, Arnold? <laughs> I would say Jesus loves you. That is, I, I wish that this were fictional, but it's not. I wish that we could all be in a setting like that. I'd probably have to leave. I don't have good pulpit face. Once I get the giggles, I'm done. (laughs) I got to go. I got you beat. Just go to YouTube and search for Clown Communion. I'm not going to say anything else about it because I can't possibly describe it without either saying something terribly heretical or offensive to clowns. It must be seen to be believed I think I might have been part of a clown communion attack. (laughs) (laughs) That, I I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. All right. Okay. Lord have mercy on all of us indeed. We will be right back. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. of Meta, TikTok, Snap, Discord, and X, formerly known as Twitter. They testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and the hearing was intense. It was emotional. But there was a moment that stuck out to me today. At one point, Mark Zuckerberg was being questioned by Senator Josh Hawley, and Hawley asks him to apologize to these families for what they've experienced because of the negative effects of social media on their kids. And you know, it was this kind of surprising thing. Like you often see in these hearings, it's very performative. It's very intense on the part of the politicians. They're in it to get their news that night of having been tough and having grilled. And 
You see people being questioned. They're very lawyered up. They have very caged answers. Everything's rehearsed and protective. But Zuckerberg goes, okay, basically. And he stands up and he turns around and he says to the families, I'm sorry for everything you've been through. No one should go through the things that your family has suffered. And this is why we invest so much. And we're going to continue to do industry-wide efforts to make sure no one has to go through the things your family has to suffer. I don't think I'm a sucker, but it just felt deeply sincere. Even reading the transcript, like that's not something you wrote before. And it, it struck me as one of these just vulnerable moments of contrition in public that was like, it's nice to see that, right? Because we just don't see those moments very often these days. I think it will tell us a lot about whether we're moving into a new era or if we're still stuck in the old one. The response that comes to this. Because right now we're in a moment where to apologize at all is to invite the sort of response that says, see, even you admit what a villain you are. And so there are many people in American life right now who have concluded the best thing to do is to never admit error, never admit weakness, never apologize. And maybe we're worn out with that. I guess we'll see. We've talked before about this kind of culture of shamelessness, mm -hmm. where this bold shamelessness takes the lead. So I agree, it is nice to see some level of apology. What I think is the difficulty is an apology from Zuckerberg doesn't alleviate the pain that parents felt. I was very proud to see this level of legislation happening because families have decided we've had enough. And I know there's always going to be a tension in this conversation about technology and children. Is it the parents' fault for not putting more restrictions and all of that? Is it the technology makers' fault and the big tech company CEOs' fault because they could care less about your children? So it was nice to see the apology, but at the end of the day, I was proud to see families holding pictures of their children and saying, you will listen to me. You will pay attention to me. Whether it solves their need to have a target, a person to sue, a person to hold accountable, I don't know. So that's where the kind of tension comes in for me. Senator Lindsey Graham pointed out the contrast with the cigarette industry, which ultimately was, at least to some degree, brought to heel by lawsuits. And I think that comparison actually is right in this sense. Look at the way that the big tobacco industry leaders all the way to the very end would stand up and testify in front of Congress and say, our product does not cause cancer. And had their lawyered up talking points, this wasn't everything we need. It wasn't even everything we need in a start, yeah. but it's a start. And maybe we should pull back and just explain what the hearings are about ultimately as well. The Senate is looking at legislation that would provide new regulations, provide new safety measures, preventing child exploitation on these online platforms. And the families that are in there are families whose children have experienced to one degree or another, often with profound tragedy, child exploitation through these various platforms. What's the goal of the legislation? I'm not sure anybody knows what to do. We're at a point where for the first, say, 20 years of the social media era, people didn't even know what was happening, didn't understand the technology, didn't understand the algorithms. There was no regulation. It was Wild West. And now you're at a point where these platforms are ubiquitous. Social media is completely woven into the fabric of American life. What can we do now? 
I was in D.C. yesterday and you can see on the bus terminal stations, you see the ads asking for legislation to be passed to limit ages on certain social media accounts, to give parents more control on the types of material and content that teenage accounts can see. So I think there is something, but to your point, it's so interwoven in society. If we leave this at legislation alone, then I think we missed the point. And here's the next step, because I think this is just a foreshadowing of what must happen with AI. At a certain point, the government is going to have to step in to say, here's the age limit, here's the parent's right to be able to block or stop certain activity, but we're also going to have to start discipling parents on how to help your children to engage with virtual life. Forget just social media, but just virtual life in general, in school, with relationships and the like. There's a scholar named Allison Stanger, who I believe she's at Harvard, has written a book about this. And she argues very much like, we need to treat these as utilities because socially, psychologically, and the rest, like you think about how much damage they can do and how dependent we are on them for daily life at this point, like the way people communicate and all the rest. It's a fascinating argument when you start to think about how much of our life is dependent upon these things for communication, especially like for me as a parent, like trying to get information on events that my kids are involved with, trying to understand, oh, they want to go to this thing. Where do I find this thing? Oh, I sign up on Facebook or I communicate through Facebook or you go on Facebook and you go, who's this family? She's going to a birthday party. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I want to know a little bit about uh, I did people. that literally 10 minutes before we started. <laughs> right. <laughs> So there is this thing where it's some people want to say about the platforms and everything, just get rid of them, do without them, be a Luddite. We don't need all of that. When you really start to think about the ubiquity of it, I think that's what makes it so hard, especially as a parent. And let's not forget the whistleblowers who, mm -hmm. at least two that I know of, have publicly responded to Zuckerberg's apology. One of them publicly saying Zuckerberg knew that certain platforms that were being developed needed safeties, child safeties, and he ignored that need and just allowed them to be produced without it. Another whistleblower saying the apology was a good start. It's hard in cases like these to identify the victim because it feels like we're all victims in some regard, and therefore it makes it hard to figure out. And we're all guilty. Out. Yes, mm -hmm. and we're all guilty. At a certain point, we're all going to have to make these decisions. And then we're all going to have to live with the consequences of these decisions. For me, it's easy because my children are young. It's easy for me to say, no, you don't have a phone. You may not use my phone to do this. But when you have teenagers, when a child has their own phone, it's like having your own weapon. How do we create the guardrails and the guidance that a young mind would need to know where danger is, what it looks like, what it smells like, on the internet, which is much harder than just don't stop when the guy offers you candy from his car. This is very different. A resource that has been tremendously helpful for us as a family dealing with this has been an organization called The Social Compass. The woman who heads it up is Krista Bowen. She's a believer and hosts a podcast called Screen Sanity that I helped produce a few years back. And it's all about these issues. It's all about these questions. And she was on the bulletin about a year ago talking about this right before Christmas. You're going to get your kid a phone. What do you do? She says, people always want to look for the tools. They want to know the apps. They want to know the filters. And they want to know all the rest. But it is about your relationship with the kid and making sure that you have the kind of relationship where you can have transparency. Because it doesn't matter what filters you use. It doesn't matter what apps you use. Vile content and evil people are coming for your kids. 
And at some point, that content will find their way to your kid's phone. The question is what happens then? How do your kids respond? Do you have the kind of relationship where they can go, whoa, I just saw this. Can we talk about it? I don't know what to do. And it can be very upsetting. So highly want to recommend Krista Bone's resources. I think they're really helpful. And we can link to the episode where she talked about what to do when you get the phone as well. You know, I was just talking the other day to a parent who said that their child had come up and talked about something that happened while playing an interactive video game. And the parent was freaked out about this. And I said, what you really ought to be is happy that your child is willing to come and get you and talk about this without thinking, oh, I'm not going to tell mom because then she'll take away my video game. So that's a parenting success there. All right. We will be right back with Cutter Calloway to talk about Sundance. The Sundance Film Festival is the largest independent film festival in the United States. Thousands of people descend upon Park City, Utah for a few days each January to brave the weather, watch new films slated to release later this year. Joining us to discuss it is Cutter Calloway. Cutter's a theologian at Fuller Seminary and the host of CT's podcast, Be Afraid. Cutter, welcome back to The Bulletin. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, for listeners unfamiliar, can you describe maybe what is Sundance about? It's about a lot of things, but I would say for me, it's part film winter camp, part Hollywood and LA descending on a small town. But more than anything else, it's what I would say is the cutting edge of the cultural conversation. I read it as like a canary in the coal mine of what are the things that people are going to be talking about in six, 12, 18 months from now because of the films that we're watching. Where would we be going culturally, societally, and then as Christians, what are some of the conversations we need to be anticipating? What stuck out to you this year? There's about 120 films. So unfortunately, you don't get to see them all in a bunch of different categories. And I think what stuck out were a few themes. So maybe I'll give you some themes that I saw and then name some of the films that landed in there. But one was you can go to Sundance and a lot of independent films can get really dark, (laughs) nihilistic, cynical. And in years past, if you saw a film that even gave you a sliver of hope, it would win the audience award, right? But this year, actually, what was really fascinating was there was a lot of lightheartedness, humor, some things that were more just absurdist. And I found that really interesting. My sort of theorizing of it is there seems to be this kind of yearning for, man, the last five, seven, 10 years or whatever have been rough. (laughs) And it would be great to laugh. It would Mm. be great to see some joy, some even just silliness, right? Another theme that came up that was similar was we've gone through a lot of rough times recently and COVID in particular seemed to rob us of rituals. And so there's a few films, one called A Real Pain with Kieran Culkin and Jesse Eisenberg about going back to Poland. They're they're Polish Jews and going back to home and film after film going, we need to find ways to ritualize some of these meaningful things in our lives kind of lighthearted and humorous, and at the same time, really heavy. And I I found that a really interesting part of the festival too. One other thing I'll say is a lot of themes on parent-child relationships, rehabilitating and reconnecting. I cannot recommend any of the films from Sundance. None of them come in rated. They're all across the board in terms of content. But one film I can recommend is a documentary called Daughters. It's about four young girls, it's through their eyes. A woman sets up a daddy-daughter dance the daddies are incarcerated men. 
And it's a documentary told from the girls' perspectives of their lives, not having their dads. It humanizes these men. You don't actually know what they're incarcerated for. They're just men. And then this the, sort of the power of this ritual and all the things that go in it that you can imagine. And that movie, I think, captures a number of different films that really we're tapping into what is the sort of crisis of parenting and parent-child relationships. And that one really narrowed in on a very specific aspect of it. It won quite a few of the audience awards and produced by Jessica Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld's wife. I know a, a few folks who saw that one. Few of them could get through talking about it yeah. because of how intensely moving it was. Among the award winners, there were a couple of Fuller grads. Can you tell us about them and the film they made? Samantha Curley is one of the producers of a film called Union. And it's a documentary that follows one of the men that started the unionization efforts coming out of Amazon. And it's kind of that classic David and Goliath tale, but it's also cinema verite. So there's really no commentary at all. It's really just showing what happens. And a lot of the feedback that it's gotten is that it's a complicated portrayal of unionization efforts, right? It's not just an agenda-driven movie that's a call to action, but instead it's giving a really intimate portrait of the lives of what many of us have considered essential workers, right? Like frontline workers of, of Amazon delivery. And then what it's like to actually work for that sort of organization and then come together as a union. Some people have asked me, what does Christian cultural engagement look like at a place like Sundance? And I've now said, see Sam Curley's union, because it, here is a person that has a degree in theology, but then has started engaging in producing and directing and writing films. She produced this one, along with a few other Fuller grads as well. It's not an explicitly Christian movie in any way, but it is deeply rooted in what I would imagine is the call to justice and how do you actually highlight and tell the stories of people who are pursuing justice and then actually how complicated that gets in the modern world. I had some friends that went to Sundance this year as well, and one of their takeaways was the fact that the power of quote-unquote real stories becomes more vibrant every year. Do you think that stories have always been powerful, but maybe several years ago they were so much a part of the fabric of our lives we didn't notice? Or is the real story becoming more powerful because of the nuances of fictionality of life and quote-unquote reality television? Is story more important now? And are you asking about like documentary story in particular? Yeah, the documentary, the sense of, of an unfiltered story. So we also partner with Windrider Summit at, at Sundance. And that gathers together a group of mostly undergrad film students from Christian colleges, universities. And we talk about the films of Sundance, et cetera. And uh, met there Morgan Neville, he and Nicholas Ma. They've worked together in a few documentaries. Most recently, you probably remember Won't You Be My Neighbor, the Fred Rogers documentary. So he did that one. And they're working on another one coming up called Leap of Faith. And it's actually about a collection of pastors in Grand Rapids and gathering together across radical religious difference and trying to be in relationship, right? So here are some filmmakers who are not necessarily identifying as Christian in any way, telling a story of can Christian leaders actually be in relationship together? And then Samantha Curley's film, Union. I think in the past you saw these documentaries in the hands of some filmmakers as almost nothing but a call to action so that the effect or the meaning or the value of it was rooted in, does this produce some measurable change in the world according to whatever the issue is at, at hand. And I don't know if it's the shift in the filmmaking or the audience, but what I saw just in the little clip was a glimpse of my everyday life. I work at a seminary, work with churches. You all are probably in the same space. How do we as Christians agree to disagree without 
breaking communion, right? What it actually gave me for just a moment was a vision of something possible that I thought was impossible. And if nothing else from the film comes of it, that was worth it. So take daughters, they do want some sort of reform in terms of how we incarcerate people, specifically the incarceration rates of black men. They want something to be produced from that. But before that happens, they're saying, imagine you <laughs> sitting in the audience are that young girl, right? You yeah. are the incarcerated man. And if we can give you a vision, a glimpse of this gets theological, right? The impossible possibility. I think that's where these stories really hit home, where they're effective. And I think the transition from that pure sort of call to action to how do I give you a vision for a life that seems impossible, but might actually be. Cutter, you, you mentioned that union was not explicitly Christian, but is coming out of a Christian understanding of reality. How do you advise people who are Christians and filmmakers to decide how explicit or implicit uh, they should be in making a film? As a person who's never made a movie, I've got lots of advice on how to make movies. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it is something actually a lot of filmmakers will ask me. And I actually usually default to what story are you telling? And if you honor the truth of that story, if you're faithful to that story, you are honoring and being faithful to the storyteller, right? It goes wrong, I think, when it becomes heavy-handed or artificial, that we feel the need to add something almost in a sort of didactic way. Like, I need to tell you this is why Jesus cares about this, as opposed to allowing the story to actually reveal itself. A classic just sort of film trope is, or any sort of storytelling, is show, don't tell. And so I think that's always the challenge for Christian filmmakers, is to draw that balance between what's the story actually giving me and where am I trying to tell rather than show? I'd be remiss if I didn't ask the host of Be Afraid, did you see any good scary movies while you were at Sundance? The craziest thing about the festival is getting tickets. And so I actually didn't end up seeing any straight horror. I do know enough about at least one that I'm really fascinated in. And it was a Norwegian film. Basically, it's a realist drama, but people just start coming back from the dead. And they're like, what do we do? Like, it's my child or my grandfather, whatever. And they're just, they've resurrected. And so the whole horror story is, what do we do with resurrection? And I find this fascinating. Uh, the Norwegian film is called Handling the Undead. Handling the Undead. Won the World Cinema Dramatic Special Jury Award for Original Music. All right, we'll be on the lookout for those. Cutter Calloway, thanks for coming back. If you have not checked out Be Afraid, make sure and take a few minutes and listen to the pilot. It is terrific. That's it for us this week. If you enjoy the podcast, take a minute, leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen. It helps other people find the show. If you want to support what we're doing, go see us at ChristianityToday.com and subscribe today. We will see you next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced by Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Post-production by TJ Hester. Our art for this episode is by Rick Shooks. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.